Can you think in your life of days or events that were turning points? Days or events that changed, and I'm talking about actually changed the course of or the direction of your life. Now, it could be a good thing or it could be a bad thing, but you were headed in one direction. You were headed down one course, and this thing, this turning point occurred and changed the course or changed the direction of your life. Can you think about certain times or events in your life like that? Now, as we think about that, probably our lives have many such events. And I think about my younger years and then my middle-aged years and think about some of the things we did as kids. And, and really, our life probably has many such of these turning point events. Maybe when you decided to marry or the choice of a career or a job that you would pursue, that your life turned, or maybe it was some other event, an unexpected event, a sickness or a death that forever changed the course of your life. Maybe this turning point was some choice that you made and you couldn't see it then and maybe it didn't seem like that big of a deal then, but looking back, everything changed with that choice. It is interesting to me to sometimes ponder or to think about these turning points. And I don't know if it's a healthy thing or not, but sometimes I like to wonder, what if, what if this had not happened? What would, what would my life be had this thing not transpired? What, what if I had done something different? Or what if I could go back knowing what I know now? Today in our study, we're going to see a profound turning point. In fact, the most profound of turning points in the ministry of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is a turning point so big, a turning point so huge that it results in his brutal death on the cross of Calvary. Our message today is entitled, The Truth Changes Everything. The Truth Changes Everything. We're going to finish up the 19th chapter. We're in Luke chapter 19 Today, verses 45 through 48. Luke chapter 19, again today, verses 45 through 48. I'm going to ask if you'd stand with me in the reverence and the honor of the reading of God's word. It says this. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dearly Father, we come today, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for a Savior. I'm thankful for your grace and your kindness shown to us at the cross. Thankful for, for mercy and pardon that was multiplied to me through your blood there at the cross of Calvary. We rejoice in such a Savior today. I pray now as we have come and we have assembled, I pray that as, as your people that our hearts of love and our hearts of gratitude have been known, made known to you, our King, our Lord. 
I pray now today as we begin to study your word, I pray as we have come on this Lord's Day morning that it would not be a normal event, that it would be a supernatural event, a God-ordained event, and I pray that you would truly speak to our hearts in this hour today. I pray for lost people to be saved, eternities to be changed in this hour today. I pray for disciples to grow in the truth of your word in this hour today. I pray for the glory of the living God to be made known in this hour today. We lay it before you. We ask that you move. We ask that you work. And we praise you. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This morning as we resume our study, think about today, this last week in the life of Jesus. Think about that. There, there is really a big change. There is a big change that occurs in the course of this week. Now, I'm afraid sometimes we focus on parts of this week, but we exclude other parts of this week, or, or maybe we have heard this story, or we've read this account, and so we overlook it. But I, but I want you to think about this today. How does a crowd, and I'm talking about no little crowd, but I'm talking about a massive crowd, how does a crowd go from yelling, Hosanna to God in the highest, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, to shouting, crucify him, crucify him in the course of a week. How does that happen? How does a group of people go from shouting and read the account, they're running and they're shouting and they're laying their coats in the road, behold our king, to saying, we have no king but Caesar. In the course of a week, how does that happen? In the course of a week, how does the one that they want to place on the throne, and understand that's their intent as he's coming down into Jerusalem, how does the one that they want to place on the throne end up being the one that they place in the tomb by the end of the week? Listen to me, that's absurd. That, that's really crazy. Maybe the biggest change of public opinion ever. What, what happens in the course of that week? What could ever change those people like that? What would ever happen that the people of God, upon hearing and receiving the, the promised Messiah from God, end up killing the Lamb of God and it all transpires in the course of this week? What could have changed? Get ready. What happens is they receive the truth. What happens is they hear the truth. That's, that's what happens. That's what the turning point is. They receive the truth. They hear the truth. And not liking the truth, they reject the truth. The truth changes everything. It is interesting Jesus calls himself the truth. John chapter 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus calls himself the truth. And over and over again, we see it here in this account. We see it throughout Christian history. We see it today over and over again. The issue is the truth. The battle is for the truth. The attack is on the truth because it is the truth that saves 
So the turning point here is the truth. Now let's see this. In our context today, Jesus has come into Jerusalem. He has presented himself as the Messiah, the marked Savior, and he has traveled now into the capital city. Now, it is a big statement. It is really a pretty huge statement. As the crowds yell out, the Bible says, seeing the miracles, having seen the miracles, they cry out and they proclaim him as the Messiah. Now, that is, that is a big deal. They are realizing this is the Messiah. Having seen the miracles, having seen most likely Lazarus raised from the dead, they are proclaiming him as he comes down as the Messiah. The, the religious leaders, these Jewish leaders, can't stand it. And now, in that context, we have the pivotal event, really the, the turning point of the account. Now, let me, let me start. Let me begin with this. There is a lot bigger. There is a lot more going on here than a lesson on prayer. Every sermon that I've ever heard on this passage has used it as a, as a set of verses to teach on prayer. And maybe there was a, a new prayer focus or a prayer emphasis or a new sermon series on prayer. And so every sermon I ever heard using these verses, it was used to teach on prayer. And be very sure today, listen to me, we ought to pray. Prayer is a main endeavor for the church. We, we know that. In the book of Acts, we see that the, it's the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer. And so understand, prayer is vital. Prayer is necessary. However, this section is not really a rebuke of the people to return to prayer as it is a revealing of their truth that their hearts had turned away from God. The truth is revealed here in this passage. And so understand, it's a lot bigger than just calling them to return to prayer. It is a revealing of their hearts that it turned away from the living God. Let's look at our verses, verse 45. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who who were selling. Verse 45 starts off and it says, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out. He began to drive out. The, the Greek word here for, for drive out uh, means to cast out. It means to eject. It is a very aggressive act. He doesn't ask them to leave. The Greek word here says it is an aggressive act. He, he ejects them out. It is safe to say he even throws them out. From the Greek language, he is throwing them out. The Gospel of Mark, referring to the same episode, says that in the process, he overturns their tables. Can you picture that? Jesus comes and he overturns their tables and he comes and in an aggressive manner. He is driving them out. He is pushing them out. Understand today, see the picture of this today. This was not normal. Really, it was not acceptable. This was no common event. 
This was the place of their religious practice. And, and here comes Jesus. Here comes this man from Galilee. And he begins to run them out. And he begins to overtone their tables. Be sure this is an act of aggression. It's really unreal. See what's happening here. Starting with the high priest Annas, and then through the succession of his sons, and then in this day, the temple leader was his son-in-law Caiaphas. Through their leadership, the temple had taken on a very corrupt practice. Now, understand what was happening here. The, the Jews would come, and they would come to the temple to sacrifice. They would come to the temple to bring their offerings. They would come to the temple to worship. Well, the chief priests had devised and had allowed a system where the animals for the sacrifice would be sold at the temple. No longer would you have to bring an animal. No longer would you have to travel with an animal. But now you could make the trip and you could buy one once you were there. Now there's several problems with this. The first problem is this. It wasn't their animal. It had no tie to them. It would not be known to them. It was of no great loss to them. And so there was removed here an element of the sacrifice. That was God's design. You would produce the animal and it would cost you. It would be of value to you. And you would know that animal. And so understand here it wasn't true worship. Instead of bringing a lamb, your best lamb of great value to you, instead of bringing a lamb that you had raised, one that your, your kids knew, one that your own hand had fed, you would just show up and buy one. And so there's no true worship here. Worship begins to be diluted here. There's no real sacrifice attached here. Then the second problem, the chief priests made this system, the system that the only money that could be used for the transaction was the shekel that was minted in Israel. And so all of the other currencies, all these coming from these other places, had to bring their money and take their money and purchase the shekel. Now they were doing that at great profit for these that were there. Those were the money changers we hear about. How does it turn that, that worship of the living God turns into a thing that there's actually money changers making a profit? That's the system that was devised. And so there was false worship. And there was a corrupt system to profit those there in the temple. And then maybe more grievous than all of that. On top of that, the Bible tells us that this transaction, these transactions took place in the outer courts of the temple. There in the, 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 the Gentile courts of the temple, those Gentiles, the Bible says, who loved God, they would come and this was their place of worship. Well, when they came to their place of worship, this is what they saw. And so on top of false worship, on top of a corrupt system that existed, God's name and his worship and the testimony to his greatness was now slandered by this practice. And so these Gentiles would come and they would say, well, evidently this is what worship looks like and it's okay. And they would come and see false worship and say, evidently this is the standard and so it is okay. 
So the greatness of God is slandered in this practice. Well, we worship, but it's just a token thing. But look at us. We're the people of God. It's okay. Well, it's not wholehearted. We just bought this thing. It's of no use to us, but it's okay. We're the people of God. In the name of God, his greatness is slandered in this practice. And that is what the Messiah finds when he walks into the temple. Can you imagine? Jesus entered the temple, began to drive out those who were selling. In John chapter two, we read, maybe you didn't know this, but in John chapter two, we read that the same thing happened at the start of his ministry. Bible tells us there, and go read the account sometime, John chapter 2, that on his first Passover trip, that a very similar account happened. Now, there are some today that say that John was wrong in his timing, and they say that, that the chronological order, that, that the apostle John got it wrong, but I'll just tell you, I believe the Bible on this, and I believe he did it at the start of his ministry. I believe he did it at the end of his ministry. Now, the truth of that is this. Listen to me, it doesn't take long for false worship to creep back in. Left to human devices, it doesn't take long for false worship to make its way in. And he starts his ministry and he says, this is not tolerable, this is a disgrace, and it just grows from there, it continues from there, and it doesn't take long in human devices for false worship to grow. Verse 46. Saying to them, he began to drive them out, those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, in my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. As Jesus is running them out, as he is aggressively pushing them out, he is saying to them, my house is to be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. The word robber here in the original language is a thief, but it's more than that. It is a thief who steals in the open, a robber, a person that would just come up and rob you, a person that would come up and abuse you, and just in the open, they would rob you, and they would take what was yours. It was a person here who doesn't even try to hide it. It's a person who doesn't even try to disguise it. A, a, a robber, in this sense, would just come up, and they would see what you had, and they would abuse you, and they would take it from you. That's the word used for robber. Prayer here translates, and you go all the way back to its root, it translates an exchange, an interaction. And so see this, the place that represented the holy presence of a holy God, the place where sinful people come to worship and to interact with a holy God had become a place where they didn't even try to hide it and they would openly abuse and rob you and they would profit from it and it was despicable in the Lord's sight. 
They didn't even try to hide it anymore. It was despicable in the Lord's sight. Notice here, notice, read the verse here. He doesn't call them to prayer here. He calls them what they are, thieves and robbers and crooks with hearts that have turned away from God. Wow. Can you imagine this? God incarnate, Emmanuel. Now think about that. God himself, God incarnate, Emmanuel. He comes and he finds the people who held the promises of God, the people who are even called the people of God, and they have rejected and they have now disgraced the very name of God. Isn't that what we do in sin? Hold on a minute, talk about them. Isn't that what I've done in sin? Isn't that what you've done in sin? We reject him, we turn against him, we even slander him. We come today and we hear this, oh, he ought to throw them out. The lot of them, he ought to throw them out. Listen, he ought to throw us out. That's what we do in sin. We reject him. We trash his name. We trample on the glory of the living God. Verse 47. And he was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. Starts off and it says this. And he was teaching daily in the temple. Now that, that caught me. I, I, I had to read that a couple times before it, actually, before it actually stood out. The plot to destroy Jesus. The revelation of a poor and wicked heart. Where, where did it happen? It happened in the temple. See where he's at. See where it all turns. See where the change begins to take root. It says in the temple, in the temple. You see, understand today, you can be religious and you can be lost. You can claim to have a heart that honors God and have the heart of a thief. And brother, you can be a big deal at the temple and yet reject his truth. It's nothing new. The Bible says he was teaching daily in the temple. Now stay with me. See this. Do not miss this. And he was teaching daily. Literally translates. Listen to this. And he was teaching to every day. And he was teaching to every day. In English, the word to is missing, but it's there in the Greek. And he was teaching to every day. To is a definite article. It precedes a noun to distinguish it. It precedes, it goes before a noun to set that noun apart. I, I think this today, I believe this. He was teaching every day, yes, but he was also teaching to every day. He was teaching every day, but he was also teaching 
to every day, meaning he is teaching to the issue of the day. He is teaching, he is speaking to the issue of that day, which was hearts that were turned away from God. Listen to me, it's not a lesson on morality, it's not a lesson on prayer, it's not a lesson on proper religious practice, it is a lesson on salvation delivered by the Savior, the Messiah of that salvation. Wow. Then see this. As we read these verses, all four of them, it might seem to be two different subjects here at the temple. Verses 45 and 46, it's the account where he throws them, where he forcibly pushes them out of the temple. And then it appears, verses 47 and 48, that he is now teaching at the temple. And it, it seems to be two different subjects here, two different episodes here. But no, I believe this. I believe they are together. I believe it is the same discourse that is carried out here. Notice here in verse 46, Jesus starts off and he says, it is written. It is written. He quotes here Isaiah chapter 56. And then he quotes here Jeremiah chapter 7. It is written. Be sure as he reveals their hearts, as he reveals the truth, as he shows them their need, it is the word of God that points to the answer, the only answer. It is the word of God that points to Jesus. He's not talking here just about prayer. He's talking about real fellowship with God through his righteousness. He's not talking here just about the wickedness of their hearts. He's talking about the Savior for their wicked hearts. And so understand today, the word of God, Jesus, is talking to the need of the day, a change of heart. It's the gospel. Now see two responses here. First, the response of the people, verse 48. And they could not find anything that they might do. For all the people were hanging on to every word he said. For all the people were hanging on to every word that he said. Hanging on every word that he said. It literally means this. I don't know if we can say it strongly enough. They were clinging to his words. They were cleaving to his words. They were, as it's translated, hanging on to his words. They were grasping for every word that he spoke. Friends, listen to me today. Hear me today. There are no more needed words. There are no more necessary words than the words of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you listen to me today. The gospel is still needed and the gospel is still the answer and the gospel is to steal the power of God unto salvation. And for a sinner condemned in their lostness, for a sinner dead in their sins, his hope is that he would hear the words of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, that they will hear the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why we exist as a church. That's why he hasn't taken you home. That's why we're still here, that they would hear, lost folks would hear the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
How dare us endeavor to do anything different? That is our mission. Oh, their hope is that they would hear the good news and when they're lost and in their sins, they cling to every word. It's the only answer. That's one response. Here's the other. Bottom half of verse 47. But the chief priests, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. To destroy him. This is the event where they know. This is the event where they fully and they finally turn. This is the light that reveals their motives. This is the truth that they can't stand. Their religion is false. Their their motives are perverse. Their hearts are corrupt. They are in opposition to God. This is the truth that they can't stand. And so now the truth changes everything and he must die. Within a week, They'll pull the Savior's corpse from a Roman cross. They have passed their turning point. And it is the truth that changes everything. Folks, friends, that truth is still the battle. That truth is still the issue. Did you hear me very well this morning? That truth still leads to salvation in our Savior, Jesus Christ. What have you done with the truth? Have you received it? The Bible says you're lost without the truth. You're lost without Jesus. What have you done with the truth today? Have you denied it? Have you downplayed it? What have you done with the truth today? It's offered to you this morning. The truth still stands. If you've received it, have you proclaimed it? Have you said, well, I've got this settled and now it's me and my kids and I've taken care of this? Or have you worried about the next door neighbor? Have you worried about the person down the street? Have you worried about the coworker, those in a foreign land? What have you done with the truth? The truth still leads to salvation. The truth still stands. His name is Jesus. What have you done with the truth? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come today and I'm thankful for my salvation through the blood of the cross of Calvary, through the resurrection of my King Jesus. I am so thankful that it wasn't dependent upon me. So thankful it wasn't depending on anything that I could muster up. Because in sin, I rejected you. In sin, I spurned your love. In, in, in sin, I trampled on your name. But in grace, 
you send Christ that I might become the righteousness of that perfect lamb that would die in this week. Lord, I praise you for that. I, I thank you for that. I truly can't really fully understand that kind of grace and that kind of love. I receive it. I praise you for it. I pray for some in this room that do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And maybe today they're hearing for the first time or maybe they're like these and they've been hiding in the temple. But I pray today in the truth of the preached gospel of Jesus Christ and the drawing of your spirit that it would be a settled fact today. They would put their faith in my Savior, Jesus. I pray for us as a people today as we've heard this message, this truth, that we would proclaim it, that we would share it, that we would speak it, and that to the glory of the gracious God that we have, and for the exaltation of our Savior, Jesus, that many would hear it. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.